Welcome to Gen X Pastor. This is the very first full-length podcast, and I'm so glad you decided to check it out. Thanks to all who listened, commented, shared, and gave a review on iTunes for the introductory episode aptly named Intro to Gen X Pastor. The more ratings and reviews on iTunes, the more this podcast will be seen, so please help me out and take a minute to let me and the world know what you think. A toast to Simo Christie and Badfinger31 for your review and rating. Cheers. Stay tuned after the podcast to find ways of contacting me and how to get updates on future shows. And now, make yourself comfortable, pour yourself a gin and tonic or whatever makes you happy, and let's get on with the show. It was Valentine's Day in the early 1990s, and I was driving as fast as I could back to Blyville, Arkansas, from Dyersburg, Tennessee, which was almost an hour away. I was one of many that waited until literally the last minute to get a Valentine's Day gift for my girlfriend. The fact that I had waited until I almost ran out of time was a bit disappointed for me. On a date we were on about a month earlier, she had pointed out a stuffed Elmo doll that stood about four feet tall while we were at Walmart. In the area that I lived in, this is a common place for a date to end up, since after a dinner and a movie, there wasn't much else to do but goof around at a department store. She had made over the red guy enough to where I knew that he was the one. The perfect Valentine's Day gift. I could picture her thinking how thoughtful I was for remembering, but as soon as the date was over and I got home, I promptly forgot all about the super romantic gift until February 14th. I had just gotten off work, spending the day stressing about the fact that I was nothing more than a typical male, and that I would be a part of the rather large community of boyfriend losers scourging the last of what Valentine's Day offerings were already picked through for what we called our meant-to-be's and forever lovers. I was hoping and praying there would be an Elmo left. Surely no one else could be clever enough to think of this mind-blowing, romantic gift that would have all the other girls jealous. But there was. Many, it seemed. The Elmo supply was completely depleted, and all that was left for the holiday was a few Valentine's Day cards and men of despair holding dead-looking flowers and half-inflated balloons at the checkout counters. I refused to give up, mainly because I didn't want to look like a thoughtless boyfriend, so I decided to make the near-hour journey to Dyersburg, Tennessee, in hopes that Elmo would be waiting for me there. Being a long-time local, I had discovered a few shortcuts here and there and decided to use one at this critical moment. It was a long gravel road that took me down the middle of a cotton field, shaving off about ten minutes or so of drive time to get to the exit that led me down the highway to Dyersburg. Most people would not have recommended using my particular vehicle on a gravel road, but I didn't have the time to worry about safety. My status as a kick-ass boyfriend and my fragile ego was clearly at stake, so I made the turn. I was driving a van that was used for the band I played in to haul our equipment to shows, should we ever book any. I'd spent the full amount of my $200 tax return to purchase this very much-needed automobile. It was a 1969 mustard-yellow Ford Econoline work van. 
There were no windows on the side in classic serial rapist style, and the engine was situated inside the van between the driver and the passenger side seats. There was a metal covering over it, but it had lost a lot of the insulation, making the interior a constant 300 degrees all year long. The engine also had a bad habit of catching on fire at times, and it was a common thing to see band members bail out the side door as the flaming van coasted into the driveway at rehearsals. It was this vehicle that I believe was the reason my girlfriend's dad chose to clean his shotgun on the night I first met the parents. When I arrived at Walmart in Dyersburg, the scene was pretty much the same. The shelves were practically bare, and the only cards left were the ones that wished a happy Valentine's Day to Grandma, and a few packs of those packs of children's Scarfield and G.I. Joe cards that we used to get at parties in elementary school, along with enough candy to drive our parents insane well past our bedtimes. I quickly ran past all of this down to the section where Elmo surely would be waiting. But he was gone. There was nothing left except for one four-foot-tall, yellow-feathered Sesame Street character. And with my time to choose a gift running out, I decided it would have to be Big Bird. I knew it wouldn't be the same, and I would have to explain that Walmart had sold out of them since I waited until the last minute. Although the idea of saying that there was a national recall on all Elmo's crossed my mind. A Big Bird substitute for the cause of safety issues might still be considered endearing. But not likely. I looked at this giant bird with his arms open wide and the happy look on his face, and I suddenly felt like I was picking out a puppy at an animal shelter. He looked so happy to not be the only stuffed animal left, which made me feel pretty good about my decision. I checked out, strapped Big Bird in the passenger seat with the seatbelt, and we headed off back to Arkansas. Once again, I decided to use the gravel road shortcut. It was, it was a decision that would lead to the strangest occurrence that ever happened to me. I had no idea that I was about to put my life, as well as Big Bird's, in danger. As we flew down the road, I kept looking over at Big Bird, seeing him smiling and looking straight out the front, so excited to be out of the store and on his way to his brand new life. I knew my girlfriend was going to love this guy. I was going to be a Valentine's Day hero, and we would talk about this day for the rest of our lives. I looked back at the road, very pleased with myself when I felt the back tires begin to slide back and forth. The gravel on the road was tossing the van back and forth like a cat does a mouse, and since power steering wasn't a thing for work fans in 1969, I had no control at all. I tried steering into the slide like I'd always been taught, but I could barely turn the wheel. I looked over at my new friend apologetically, knowing how disappointed he must be to have been freed from the shelf at the store, only to end in a fiery death not 15 minutes later. I grabbed the wheel, steadied myself, and awaited the inevitable. Now I can tell you what happened to the van, but as for me and Big Bird, I still have no idea. Whatsoever fear has come to life, whatsoever I fought off became my life. Just when every day. 
seem to greet me with a smile the sun's about to fade and now i'm doing time now i'm doing time okay here's what happened to the van as the sliding back and forth progressed the van eventually slid into a ditch on the left causing it to roll over twice and finally rest on its side I can tell you this because I saw it roll over the last time. But what happened to those of us inside the cab, I don't know how to explain. The last thing I remember about being in the van was looking over at Big Bird, then bracing myself for the worst. The very next second, I was 50 feet in front of the van, standing, facing the wreckage, as the scene finally concluded. Big Bird, who was safely fastened in his seat by the seat belt, was now locked in a ferocious headlock under my right arm. The only evidence that we were even in the van at all was I had a small cut on my hand that bled enough to inadvertently smear blood all over Big Bird's face. The van was ruined. It would have one last trip, and that would be as it was hauled away to a junkyard since the cost to fix everything would be way more than the $200 I bought it for. Being that it was the early 90s, a cell phone was not something a bass player in a grunge band would possess. I turned to walk the rest of the way down the gravel road, still carrying a bloody-faced Big Bird under my arm. I pulled my black trench coat tight against the cold February wind, adjusted my Pearl Jam hat that I only wore backward, buttoned up my flannel shirt, and headed towards the next house I saw away in the distance. It was the home of a farmer who, when he finally answered the door, informed me that they didn't have a phone as his wife cowered down behind him. It took a flamboyant hairstylist friend of mine to drive by and pick me and my friend up before I could get help. He said it was too weird enough of a scene to just pass by. I told him the story, although I think he was too busy laughing at Big Bird's now traumatic expression on his face while sitting in my lap to have much of an opinion about what he thought happened. It truly became a Valentine's Day that I've never forgotten. Not because it was wildly romantic. The thought of giving a blood-smeared Big Bird as a Valentine's Day gift seemed a little too dark and creepy. And having somehow survived a horrific accident together, it just didn't seem right for him to be anywhere but with me. We had a tight bond now. Obviously, what made this an unforgettable Valentine's Day was that the unexplainable happened. I was in the van, and then I was safely 50 feet away. How did this happen? Some have claimed that God intervened, that I had a true-to-life encounter with God himself. And if that was the case, why would he spare me? Looking back, I became a pastor several years later, but here I am now doing a podcast about not being a pastor, but someone dealing with losing faith. Did God get the credit for this because it can't be explained any other way? Or was I, for even just half a second in the actual presence of God. Black balloon makes a fly. I almost fell into that hole in your life. 
thinking about tomorrow. One of the main positions I held at the church I worked at was the worship leader. A worship leader's job in most charismatic churches is to lead a congregation into God's presence through sincere worship, using music, and whatever else you could think of. It was the goal of each church service to attain this communion with God, both through the worship service and through the sermon the pastor or evangelist performed. At the end of the service, the congregation were called to the front to pray and repent of their sins or ask for healing be delivered from their afflictions, all dependent on what the preacher talked about. And if God's presence was felt, it was considered a really good service. And if God's presence was felt at many services in a row, then the church would be considered to be in revival. Every church in the Pentecostal religion hoped for revival. So trying to be a good worship leader, I looked at other churches that were claiming to be in revival. And in the late 90s, there was one. It was in Pensacola, Florida, that began in 1995 on Father's Day under the preaching of evangelist Steve Hill and the worship leader that I stole much of my way of doing worship at my church. His name was Lyndall Cooley. The revival at the Brownsville Assembly of God lasted for around five years or so. There was an estimated four million people that attended this revival over those five years. The movement was in large part based on a call for repentance and a message to live a holy life in the face of the world's many temptations. But even more than that, people came to experience the manifestation of the Holy Spirit that was evidenced through the hundreds of people each service who would fall to their knees, lay on the floor, fall in pews, cry, raise their hands in the air, speak in heavenly languages, and just stay for hours at a time. These people wanted to experience the presence of God. In my effort to research this phenomenon, I amassed a large collection of Brownsville services on cassette tape that I could listen to in my car. I had VHS tapes where I could visually study each service. I bought tons of worship CDs that were released by Lyndall Cooley in the Brownsville Church. I completely immersed myself in what they were doing in hopes that if we did what they did, we would be the next big revival. Our church would be highly successful and I would get to be a part of something big. But deep down inside, under all the shallow things, I really hope to experience what they experienced in Florida. The thought that the creator of the universe would physically be in the same room with me and actually touch me was beyond what I could comprehend. I've seen several services in my church and even the small country church that I grew up in that seemed to have a lot of the same happenings from time to time that looked like what I saw in the videos. But I wanted to feel it too. I hadn't ever felt a force knock me to the floor. I never spoke in a different language, and I really tried to. 
There were times I would go into the sanctuary at night sometimes and try it out in private. But I felt like it sounded more like I was quoting the Swedish chef from The Muppet Show. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't feel it. It felt fake. At church, we played Linda Cooley songs for the worship. We had a PowerPoint presentation on a large screen that dropped out of the ceiling so everyone could learn the lyrics and sing along. We had kids from the youth group that would perform sign language or mime the lyrics of each worship song. We even had flags and banners flying, a full choir and band, stage lights, high-quality sound equipment. And even though we had some amazing music, there was no revival for Blyville, Arkansas. As an attempt to figure out what we were missing, I decided it was time to go to the source. I wanted to see it with my own eyes and see if, for the first time, I could feel God in this very supernatural way. It was time to go to Florida. If everybody had an ocean across the USA, then everybody be serving like California. You'd see them wearing their baggies, Warachi sandals too, a bushy, bushy blonde hairdo. Serving USA. You'll catch them serving at Delta, Ventura USA. County Line, Santa Cruz and The ride to Florida seemed to go by so fast. I was excited about the thought that I was about to experience something life changing. Plus, I'd never been to Florida before. The beach, the golf, the food. I was just so ready. It was me and my wife at the time and the children's pastors who went with us in hopes of experiencing God firsthand at the greatest revival of our time. We drove the nearly eight-hour trek to what we considered would be what would change the way church would be for all of us. We were going to take a piece of revival home with us. But first, it was time for the beach. It was the first time to see a body of water so massive for me. The August sun felt hot on my skin. The cool breeze coming off the water brought the gulf to my face as I sat quietly, soaking in the soothing sounds of the constant waves. I sat in my chair, faced the water, and in minutes my very tired body fell asleep. The children's pastor basically did the same thing, and after us both waking up an hour or so later on the beach, we learned how evil the direct Florida sun can be. I was modestly covered except for my white Irish legs that were just being exposed to the sun for the first time that summer. When I woke up, I looked down at painful, swollen, bright red legs. The children's pastor had the same exact color, but it was on his chest. We were both in so much pain that we decided to go back to the hotel and lather up in cooling gel to try and get some relief. After getting back to the room, I thought it would be a good idea to sit in a tub full of cold water, which nearly sent me into shock but it was about the only relief I could get. But it was getting close to time for the church service, and I was determined to make it. I had a brand new churchy-looking outfit for this service, thinking it would be appropriate since I would be meeting God. But it would have to wait. I couldn't put anything on my legs without wanting to cry. Against everyone's better judgment, we got in the car 
and headed off to Brownsville, still mostly in beach attire. We still had to stop on the way at a pharmacy to get more cooling gel as the steady burn returned after already going through two large bottles. We were hoping that maybe we could sit way in the back and keep slathering that stuff on when we needed it until we could make our way to the front and experience what true revival felt like. The service took forever. I could barely concentrate because of the unrelenting burn on my legs. It just wouldn't stop. We patiently waited while several different people would get up and talk about their ministry and what they had planned for the upcoming months. After an hour, I still had seen nothing of the revival that was on the videos that I poured over so many times. Where was the fire? The passion? Where was God? And where the hell was Lyndall Cooley? After what seemed like 20 people got up and spoke, the music finally started. Only, it wasn't Lyndall Cooley. They played Lyndall Cooley songs, and he played Lyndall Cooley's keyboard, but this was not Lyndall Cooley. Apparently, Lyndall Cooley was off at a conference. I never even thought to check and see if he would be there. There were no throngs of people rushing forward to the front, falling down from the presence of God. It was no more of a church service than what we usually had at our church. We had, through not-so-careful planning, attended a ministry-focused service instead of a revival service. And I didn't even know that there was a difference. There wasn't even any preaching as Steve Hill, the evangelist that was there at the beginning of the revival, was also not even in the building. I was devastated. And in much pain. The children's pastor was obviously severely uncomfortable as well, so we decided that we were just going to leave. When we finally began the long trip home, I felt deflated. I sat in the front passenger seat with the air conditioner vents pointed at my elevated legs, not saying much of anything for the excruciating eight hours we rode back. I had somehow missed the presence of God at the biggest revival in the Pentecostal religion of that time. All I came back with was disappointment and a second-degree burn on both my legs. church wasn't the same anymore. If God wanted to be in our presence, then why didn't he just show up? We wanted it. I wanted it. It was Friday, two weeks after I came back from Florida. The first week back was spent sitting in bed, my legs swollen to the point to where there was no change in diameter between my knees and my ankles. I had to put towels underneath each leg because of the amount of fluid that was seeping through. I kept covered in cooling gel, eating any kind of pain reliever I could find, and spending my time not sleeping. Just thinking. I expected to come back with a brand new kind of fire in my soul from being in his presence in the revival. 
Instead, the fire was only in my legs. I felt humiliated, hurt. I was a worship leader. If anyone was supposed to find the presence of God, it was supposed to be me. God had put me in this position, I had thought. And yet he was absent, and I was frustrated, to say the very least. I'd finished up the worship set for Sunday on that Friday night and had went into the sanctuary to prepare the PowerPoint so we could try once again to see if God would show up or not. I sat in the near dark, only turning on a few lights so I could see my keyboard to enter the lyrics. Words like, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, I want to see you, and this is the air I breathe, your holy presence living in me, gathering on the screen like they did every week. The same songs. The same hope. I did everything I knew to do. I looked up toward the front, right in front of the pulpit where I had seen so many others fall on the floor, tears streaming, heavenly languages filling the air as people were so moved, claiming connection with the Almighty. I stopped typing and walked up to the front to that very spot, another place where God was supposed to have been. And I began to speak to him. It's me again. I know you hear me. I'm standing in a place where I know you've been, and yet you aren't here now. Why? I've played the right songs. I've said the right things. We have this elaborate worship team all for you. Why can't you come down for me? I'm standing right here. Knock me down. Make me speak in another language. Bring me to tears. Show me something. How can I bring people into your presence if you never show up for me? I'm right here in your house. Where are you? Where are you, God? I sat down on what we called altars that had uh, been positioned up front that many other tears had soaked through. The pain still in my legs from that completely disappointing trip to find God in a place where I knew He was at. And here I was again, waiting for God in a place where He once was. Where He was for others. And I felt defeated. Lost. I had no choice but to come to the conclusion that it was all my fault. Everything was right on paper and in practice. But God was never there in the way that I wanted him to be so badly. The way I'd seen so many others experience him. I left the church that night feeling that it was time for someone qualified to help lead this church into revival. I felt like I was not the one. I was not chosen for this job. Maybe God was waiting for me to just move on. A few years later, I left the church. I never felt the presence of God in a revival-type way. I was offended by God, and it was the beginning of me really investigating what was even real about the world of religion. The way I saw it, either the people were wrong about God being there, or God didn't want me to know Him in this way. Many years later, believe it or not, I was reminded of this period of my life when I had the extreme privilege to see the infamous Sir Paul McCartney in concert in St. Louis, Missouri. One, two, three, four! 
It was a crowd of 41,000 people all staring at the stage to see the rock and roll icon perform songs the world grew up with. People of every age and race filled the seats, shifting back and forth with building excitement. I had went with my dearest friend Brian, whom I also went to Seattle with, for those that remember the story from the last podcast. We were long-time music lovers, and this was an event we'd been planning on for months. And now, we were going to be able to see the man in person play the songs that we played ourselves a million times. As the lights went out, the crowd screamed, and everyone stood up. There was nothing disappointing about what we were seeing. This was the concert that all other concerts would now be compared to for me, and all of them with Paul Short. 41,000 sang along to every song the band played. But it was when Paul sat down at his piano and began Hey Jude that I noticed something that looked very familiar. It only took one second of this song to bring the crowd into full and complete attention. Everyone stood up, eyes closed, some had their hands in the air waving lighters and lit up cell phones. People were moving and swaying. It was absolutely beautiful. Our seats were almost on the field at Bush Stadium, and as the song went on, I looked to my left at the seats way at the top and scanned the crowd all around me. The swell of the sound of voices was breathtaking as we all sang along as one voice, but many. So many of us lost in nostalgia and emotion, singing together the extended ending of Na 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 as loud as we could. As I was taking in the amazing moment, to our right was a couple that I guess was close to my age. He had his arms around his family and was in tears, the emotion welling up and streaming down his face. I got choked up as well, just being right in the middle of this amazing scene. And it dawned on me. This is just like the videos I saw of the Brownsville Revival. Minus the speaking in other languages, it looked the same as it did when I watched the revival on all those videos. Hands in the air, moving and swaying back and forth. Tears, laughter, emotions heightened, everyone becoming one, arm in arm. Paul McCartney had brought Revival to St. Louis, Missouri. At least Revival is what I would call it. Describing the concert afterward, I always used the word spiritual. I could feel it in my soul. It was moving, indescribable, and beautiful. To be a part of so many people, all loving the night, all there for one reason, 
one focus to see Paul McCartney, but maybe more than that, to be transported to a place where our problems were left at the door and we could forget a while about regular life. The night was magic and you couldn't help but feel changed inside. What I longed for God to let us feel at our church, and even more than that, what I longed for myself, was what I imagined the feeling at this concert was. What I imagined the presence of God felt like. All the work, all the prayer, I didn't understand. Was God there? If He was, it took no effort at all to feel Him. I never would have even thought about feeling the presence of God there. Why would I? There was no Linda Cooley. There's no evangelist, no choir, no old hymnals. It was secular music. And even the mention of God was absent. But yet I felt it. I felt something. And it appeared that 41,000 people did as well. All of us felt it together. All of us there for one reason and for three hours, we were all one. There was something that would happen a few years later that made me think that maybe, just maybe after all this time, I might have put together and figured out where I truly believed God was. Green plastic watering can for a fake Chinese rubber plant and a fake plastic gun. What you bought from a It was only a moment, maybe not even but a few seconds, but it was something that I carried with me for a long time. I was leaving Walmart after going in for toilet paper and leaving with $87 worth of other crap. It was a busy day and the cars were jam-packed in the large parking lot. It was hot and humid as it always is in Blyville, Arkansas during the summer months. I pulled out of my parking space and got in line to leave when I saw a man sitting on the ground at the entrance to the parking lot. He had a sign resting across him that simply had the word hungry written on it. The lot was so busy that I was afraid to stop, so I drove past him. He never looked up at any of the cars going by. He just sat with his head down, sweat dripping off the end of his nose, staring down at the sign. I don't know how long he had been there, and as I went by, something kept pulling at me, very strongly. I drove over to Burger King and, without even a thought, ordered a Whopper combo, king-sized. I drove back over to where the man was and gave him his order and the last $25 I had on me, causing the cars to begin to pile up behind me. The man looked up and simply said, God bless you, and took a long, clearly satisfying drink. I didn't know what to say, but you're welcome, and then drove off, allowing the traffic to flow back into Walmart. 
God bless me? I was amazed by his response. As far as I could tell, this man had no one, no home, no money. He had nothing except whatever was in the bags that sat around him. He was hungry and hot and didn't have anything to drink and asked God to bless me, the guy with $87 worth of crap in an air-conditioned car. I had felt so compelled to help this guy out to the point of almost feeling anxious. And then after I knew he could take down his sign, I felt warm, at peace. My heart felt big. This feeling of nirvana overwhelmed me, and this was different than anything I'd ever felt before. Later, I remembered a verse in the New Testament. It says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I go back to the guy at Walmart. When I gave him food to eat and a drink to drink, was that where God was? The compulsion to go get him that whopper and then that feeling afterward, was was that him? Does it really take a formula of the right music, the right preacher, the right programs, all just to get God to visit his people? When I was connected to others, strangers to that at the Paul McCartney concert, I could feel him standing arm in arm with thousands of people or giving someone who was in need what they needed. Both were times that something moved inside my soul. I may not have fell on the floor or spoken another language, but I felt something very special. I never did feel God any other way. Maybe when he said he wanted to dwell among us, he meant very specifically and literally right among us, not in a holy dwelling place full of holy people being holy, but in the street, in the crowd, right where you already are. And when we connect with each other and are united together in whatever capacity we have the chance to be in, maybe that feeling we get is God brushing past us, as if to whisper, here I am, Kevin, here I am. There's another very interesting verse in the Bible that I should mention that I think is relevant here. It says, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. 
For by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. That's in Hebrews if you want to check that out. As far as how I got out of that van on that cold Valentine's Day, I still have no idea. I'll have to write that up as one of my life's mysteries. I can't say it was definitely God, but I'm not going to say it wasn't God either. I searched all those years after the accident for a powerful contact with God, and maybe, just maybe, I was one of the few who actually was in the literal hands of God. Maybe the reason I never felt God in church was because He had already answered my prayer of a supernatural experience with Him many years earlier on a gravel road with a stuffed animal tightly in my grip. Regardless of what the truth is, I have to say it's a pretty damn good story. And I'll just have to let you decide for yourself what really happened. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Gen X Pastor. Please check me out on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, iTunes. Also, you can find me at www.genxpastor.wordpress.com where I'll post pictures of things mentioned in the show. And if you'd like to contact me, leave a message or question at genxpastor at gmail.com or you can even leave a voicemail at 573-575-6060. Let me know what you think happened in the accident with the van and maybe I'll play it on the next episode. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to leave a rating and review on iTunes. And if you'd like to become a patron of the show and help out with the expense of producing this podcast, go to www.patreon.com slash Featured music on this episode was Fell on Black Days by Soundgarden, Black Balloon by Goo Goo Dolls, Enemies Camp by Lindo Cooley, Surfing USA, The Beach Boys, Indifference by Pearl Jam, I Saw Her Standing There by Paul McCartney, and Hey Jude by Paul McCartney. Fake Plastic Trees by Radiohead and One of Us by Joan Armstrong. Thank you for all your shares and comments and messages again. We'll do this again soon.